Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, busily adjusting her headsets. You, you okay over there? Uh, you know, my my ears are on my head, and the headset is not on my ears, but we're it's okay. It's makes all it, good. Makes it tough to hear it that is, way. It does. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, not a sound expert, and is a graduate of Trinity University and uh, UIW. She also serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and is on the board of the National Council on Aging, where she is the past chair. I just came back from Washington, D.C. NCOA meeting. NCOA board meeting, and it's always exciting to uh, learn what's coming down the pike. You know, we get a little bit of public policy, who's going to win the midterms. Uh, We look at the programs, and we really look at, you know, we're in the thick of this babe this you know boom this baby boom of people turning older and so i think i I tell people you know for 30 years we've been talking about the boomers are coming we're going to have all of these older people and it's now so we have to stop talking about it and start doing right still 10,000 a day turns 10,000 a day we're going to go all the way up to 74 million people over the age of 65 wow so which is kind of a daunting thought but it's also exciting and more over 65 than 18 and under. That's right. We're going to pass all of the young people. So get ready. Old people are us. And perhaps it'll change the priorities in Congress. Well, the boomers have changed every age they have gone through. So you think about, you know, Dr. Spock and why Johnny can't read in the 50s. You learn all the elementary school buildings and the portable buildings and all of that. And, and then, we, you know, when they... Uh, started going into business and you know all the political climate everything that's going on right now is because the the boomers have found their voice and they're you know they want what they want when they want it the way they've had it their whole lives that's pretty cool so get ready now the one thing you didn't have to worry a lot about in washington and and i used to live there is snake bites well texas has every variety of poisonous snake in north america Right here in Bear County. Well, the New York Times article that you shared with me, the, what is what scared me, was the title was Tiny Nanoparticles to Treat a Huge Problem, Snake Bites. Yes. And I'm thinking, is snake bite a huge problem? But that comes from the perspective of the United States. So let's open our minds and think globally. I had no idea that 2 million people in the world are bitten Every year, 100,000 people die of snake bite every year, and another 400,000 are left with serious disabilities. So I already didn't like snakes, um, and that didn't make me feel any warmer towards them at all. Well, what about snake anti-venom? 
Well, you know, anti-venom is very expensive, and it has to be refrigerated. So that, you know, that old joke about, you know, <laughs> you're probably going to die. You're going to die. Once you find out what the treatment yeah. is. I mean, the whole cutting the wound and sucking right. out the poison. Yeah, you're going to uh, die. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to die. They don't even recommend that. Don't do that. You know, if you have an open sore or something in your mouth, you definitely do not want to be sucking out any venom from anybody, uh, including your own, if you get a snake bite on yourself and there's no one around. Um, so uh, there's not a lot of um, drug companies that want to produce anti-venom, and there's not – you have to have a different anti-venom for every snake. Wow. So you just mentioned all these different snakes. And yeah, they're all here. And they're different anti-venom. So the good news is – and this has nothing to do with anything related to caregiving unless you have snakes in your area. It was just interesting that they've got these little tiny plastic particles, nanny, nanoparticles, which are also showing up, I think, in our water supply. But little particles of plastic, they bind to the venom. Um, you know molecules and they will keep it from spreading so right venom gets in the bloodstream gets picked up by the tissue around and kind of grows the damage it spreads and it grows well this stabilizes it because it binds with it keeps it in one place so it doesn't get worse and that may buy you and the rest of the people in the world that have snake bite the time you need to get the right treatment and the right anti-venom so it leads us a step in the right direction but i had no idea that snake Bite was such a big deal. Continuing on the animal track on Caregiver SOS on air, what about cats and rats? Cats, the people listening to the show, we don't know why we're talking about cats and rats. Because they're interesting. Because it's interesting and it was also in the news. But I knew the answer to this, right? Because I read the book Rats. Oh. That was written by an exterminator who studied rats in New York City. I don't think he was an exterminator. Anyway, a researcher who studied rats in New York City, and I heard him on National Public Radio years ago. And they, you know, they make everything seem fascinating. And, and so I read the book about rats. And they were talking about how big city rats are. They're the size of a small cat. Yes. And so here we are, fast forward. Many years later, New York City, probably the same rats, um, in Brooklyn, and they were wanting to study rats. And while they were studying the rats at this recycling plant, some stray cats moved in. And they're like, great, now we can see who wins, the cats or the rats. Well, the cats really didn't want to bother the rats because those (laughs) rats were hefty rats. And they were saying, you know, a full-grown rat can take on a cat. In fact, they only killed one of the rats. So for those of you who think you've ever seen a rat, and if you have not been scared out of your wits, then you haven't seen a rat. <laughs> I can tell you that to someone who has. You know, that in the same book, he talks about the exterminator. When people call and say, you know, he talked to an exterminator. When people call and say, I think I have a rat, he knows they have a mouse. When they call and they say, rat, 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 then they have a rat. <laughs> Interesting. So there you go. Rats will beat the cats, and the cats are going to leave them alone. So Now, we don't get rats that big here. We don't get rats that big. If you live in New York City, I'm just telling you, you can't get enough cats to kill the rats. A lot of They're rats. They're not going after them. And those little rats are, those rats are sneaky. They are hiding. Now, for those of us who are afraid of rats, and not snakes. happy. Afraid of snakes and, snakes and rats. What about <laughs> harnessing our anxieties? Well, so yes, here you have this opportunity to to test out your anxieties. This isn't talking about fear of poisonous animals and scary rats, which you just reminded me that when I called um, the house on base where I had the rat in my house, they asked me if he was poisonous. I said, no, he's a rat. 
And they said, well, if he was poisonous, we would come get him. But since he's just a rat, you figure it out. Seriously. So there you go. There you go. I didn't Thank know there you. were poisonous rats. Yeah, there's not. There aren't. So, but it, they should be because then they would the military base people would come and clean up the house. That's pretty funny. So anyway, going yeah. on to anxiety, I digress. Um, if you have a you know anxiety, and I'm remembering piano competitions when I was younger, uh, and this may be you know something that you as a caregiver have uh, just as a condition. There are people that have anxiety, and you may be one of them. So they're saying. We talk about reframing, reframing stress, you know, in bad situations in caregiving. So they're talking about reframing the anxiety. Think of, think of it as a signal that you need to address something. So if you are having anxiety, your body's telling you, hey, you're worried about something. And so you may need to decide what is it that I'm worried about. Is it they're going to take my blood pressure and my blood pressure is always high when they take it because I'm worried that they're going to take my blood pressure. I have white coat syndrome. This is something that happens to me. I get anxiety when they're going to take my blood pressure. So it's always sky high. So you have to think about, no, they want me to be healthy. I don't want to have high blood pressure. So what do I need to do to keep that from happening? Mindfulness. Mindful. I take deep breaths. I don't drink caffeine on the day that really? I'm going to have a blood pressure check because that causes higher blood pressure. I get there early, so I have a chance to get over being mad at all of the traffic on the way to the physician's office. And deep breaths. And so see how I see that? I have white coat anxiety, but because I know that and I recognize that the outcome is high blood pressure readings, I'm able to do something about it. So they're saying you have to embrace it and let that feeling kind of stir your experience, decide what you're going to do about it. Um, And then, you know, they say see it as a problem to be solved or embrace it and diagnose it, figure out what you're going to do about it. And think of it as your partner. It's your anxiety is telling you something. And if you always have anxiety and you're always feeling severely anxious, do see a therapist because, you know, too much anxiety uh, is not good for you. It's like too much stress. Speaking of anxiety, we're going to be talking in just a few minutes with Angela Lundy uh, from the Mayo Clinic about Alzheimer's and caring for Alzheimer's patients and those with dementia. What about guns and dementia? Grandpa's got a shotgun, and you're a little worried now as his senility his dementia takes over should he have a shotgun well again the voice of experience i'm back in florida back where the rats were in the house that's where you were the model air force wife i was the model air force wife um but i also ran the dementia program and we actually had a talk with one of the caregivers saying you need to get rid of the guns in the house you know your dad has severe dementia and he's dangerous and they said, we can't take daddy's guns. Daddy's always have guns. Daddy will be mad at us if we take his guns. We can't take daddy's guns. So they did not take daddy's guns until the night that daddy decided that the son, his son was actually a boyfriend of his wife. And he decided he was going to kill the new boyfriend of his wife and missed his son. I mean, he literally nicked his ear wow. when he shot at him. And then they decided it was time to take Daddy's guns. So in this situation, they actually had the local sheriff, because it was a small town, and they knew him, come and tell Daddy that their house had been broken into and all the guns were stolen. Wow. 
And so they were always going to take Daddy to get new guns because of the stolen guns. And that just kind of never happened. But what actually had happened was they had the police come by. They gave the police the guns to dispose of. Um, and that's how right. they got rid of the guns. So basically the story in the New York Times is saying that doctors are, are kind of grappling with Second Amendment rights where people are saying everybody has the right to a gun. You know, but as we know, mental health problems and dementia being a cognitive impairment in guns make a dangerous cocktail. Yes. So um, I think as caregivers, we have to be the brave, strong ones and think of the bullet going past our ear or our child's ear. I mean, people with Alzheimer's have shot their, their spouses. They've shot their kids. They've shot their caregivers because they don't recognize them. Um, and so in a moment of panic, they do the wrong thing. So we have to do the right thing. And it, it's not really a constitutional issue. It's, you know, it's a safety issue. Is. And you have to be the strong one. If you have a concern about it, talk to your doctor. Talk to some law, law enforcement folks about how you can get the help for your loved one and get the guns or at least the bullets out of the house. Angela Lundy joins us in a moment from the Mayo Clinic. And at the end of this program, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, we take up the question of taking the keys away and taking the guns away. All that coming your way on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Did you know 9 out of 10 WellMed patients would recommend WellMed to friends and family? That's what our patients said in a 2017 Press Ganey survey. We have a better approach to health. WellMed doctors specialize in keeping people on Medicare healthy so you can live your best life. The Medicare annual enrollment period is October 15th to December 7th. You deserve the best. Pick a plan that opens the door to WellMed. Learn more at wellmedfindadoctor.com. But we are so pleased that you have stuck with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we are delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS On Air landline and hotline, Angela Lundy from the Mayo Clinic. She earned a BS degree from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse in 1988, a master's degree from St. Mary's University, not the one here in San Antonio, but the one up in Minneapolis. She was awarded the recognition of associate in the Department of Neurology in 2012 and is a certified wellness coach and yoga instructor. So, Angela Lundy, nice to talk with you. Welcome back. Great. Thank you. Nice to be here. We had you on in 2013, which really shows you that uh, this show's been on for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, good news for you. I know it's, it's something that probably serves uh, a lot of people. Well, speaking of news, in the news today, and this fits in directly with the kind of work you do with the Mayo Clinic and elsewhere, uh, retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor announced that uh, she is suffering from uh, dementia, probably Alzheimer's. And uh, going public is so important for people to begin to feel comfortable with, yeah, that's what I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, thank you for sharing that with me. And, you know, it, it has, I think, one of the... the um, uh, things that have happened over the last, you know, number of years is we're really seeing that individuals are um, brave enough and willing enough to make their situation known, and it does really translate, I think, into other individuals 
uh, finding the ability to seek out, you know, solutions perhaps to their own challenges and concerns, especially as it relates to, to cognitive changes in memory. Now, one of the things you have done with the Mayo Clinic, uh, you serve as an institutional, state, and national expert and leader in recognizing the needs of persons with dementia, and you support caregivers of people with Alzheimer's and related dementias as well. As you take a look at the work that's being done, the research being done, folks at the Mayo Clinic know everything about research. How close are we to finding a magic bullet for dementia? Hmm, well... Probably not close to finding necessarily the magic bullet, um, but I think really the transition and, and probably um, the, the real progress over the last many years is really the identifying and recognizing that the pathology for the disease of Alzheimer's um, and, and the common hallmark features are, are these proteins called plaques and tangles. And one of the things that the imaging uh, technology and advancements have uh, allowed researchers to do is to really begin to understand and to recognize that this disease um, happens in the brain often decades before symptoms begin to show up in an individual's daily life, uh, maybe 15 or 20 years prior to symptoms. And so because the ability, at least in research right now, to detect the pathology before symptoms, it's really transitioned the way that researchers are beginning to think about that magic bullet. And the medications that have been on the market now for a number of years, uh, a classification of medications called acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, have definitely not been the magic bullet. While for some, they may slow or delay the progression at best. And so the reason that these medications may not have been that effective may actually be not that the medications in and of themselves are not effective, but perhaps it's because the medications are given too late. So I think the hope and, and what we're going to hear more about over the next many years is really more of a prevention model because if we can detect the pathology of this disease in the brain before symptoms, it offers, up the, us, offers us up the opportunity to treat people in an asymptomatic state versus when symptoms are present, and that probably is too late. Let me ask you this question. Uh, because the I'm, I'm kind of at the tail end of the baby boom generation, uh, and if you're thinking about how many years ahead you have Alzheimer's or a dementia before you have symptoms, and the big fear is the number of boomers that could possibly have dementia, is this bad news for the, you know, this big, giant, booming population in terms of how many people will have dementia here, the 74 million boomers? The tangles are lurking in their brains. Already. It's too late already. <laughs> right. Tangles may be lurking in the brain already. Well, you know, you might be familiar with the National Alzheimer's Project Act, uh, which, which, which went into effect a number of years ago and is really this all-out coordinated effort for our country to really begin to have some kind of therapy or treatment or cure uh, by 2020. And, and I think, you know, with additional funding now um, from the NIH, really at a funding level like we've never seen before, 
Um, I, I think that the opportunity for some real advancements to occur um, over the next five to ten years, I think, is, is absolutely possible. You know, kind of keeping in mind, and, and I'm, you know, kind of in the same place you are, Carol, and sort of at the end of that baby boomer uh, generation, and so I'm really interested in, you know, what can happen and, and what advancements might be made in the next 10 years or so. And what about for um, those of us who I are... Think even when there is a therapy, you know, that, that might be somewhat hopeful at maybe not necessarily stopping the disease in its tracks, but it's very likely that over the next decade, maybe even sooner, we may really see the advancements of some additional therapies that really do significantly slow down the progression. And I think you and I would both agree, you know, better to sort of begin to see symptoms perhaps in our, you know, mid to late 80s versus our early to mid 70s. And I think that is entirely possible and and probably likely. Well, what I like that in talking with researchers, as we have the opportunity to do here at Caregiver SOS on Air, when we started, probably the conversations we were having in 2013, the last time we had you on the show, um, I remember one researcher uh, that had a positive outlook in regard to Alzheimer's, and now we're hearing more positive news. So um, we've had several that say they do believe that there will be a significant change in treatment and prevention, possibly both, in the next Mm -hmm. decade, which Mm -hmm. we're all hanging on to that. Right. I think the two are really working uh, parallel with each other. Both this treatment, you know, what we can do when we know the pathology actually is there or symptoms are even present. And at the same time, you know, because we have such advancements in, um, in technology, we're really able to also look at, you know, what happens when uh, we do certain things in in our life or or, uh, the behaviors that we do or otherwise known as lifestyle modifications and how those lifestyle modifications may actually um, impact um, what's happening uh, in the brain. Stick with me just a minute. I'm going to remind folks who may have just joined us You're listening to Angela Lundy, who's at the Mayo Clinic. We're talking about her work in Alzheimer's and dementia, helping families and caregivers as well. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. I know I, for one, uh, Angela, listening to you about lifestyle changes, I'm eating a lot of broccoli because (laughs) I, I put my hope into broccoli as the true preventative vegetable for dementia. You do. All right. All right. Well, well, time will tell then. Yeah. Right, yeah, Ron? He, another, another true believer in broccoli, Ron. <laughs> He's looking for the one person that's going to say, that's right, broccoli, it is the best. <laughs> yeah, I've yet to have. Well, we've yet nobody's endorsed this yet. 15 years, years <laughs> Ron, well, we'll better know the answer to, uh, to, the, to the broccoli remedy, right? Well, we've yet to have anybody on the show who <laughs> said, that's great, you're covered, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm hoping you're enjoying all that broccoli. Well, um, Angela, let me ask you a question. At at the top of the show, you mentioned, um, you know, people speaking out who have Alzheimer's. Uh, Mm -hmm. And in your work with people with Alzheimer's in academia, what does that mean for the person with Alzheimer's to have a voice where in the past they really didn't have a voice? Yeah, and that, that's been, I think, one of the significant shifts that we've seen as well in the last decade. And that's, 
you know, with um, opportunities, uh, you know, social media opportunities, it and uh, it has afforded, I think, the individuals living with this with this disease to to have a voice to come out to share what what they're thinking and what they're feeling and and move out of the isolation. I think that has really been a part of this disease for so long. And it, it's been really a great, um, you know, opportunity for me as well. One of the things that I'm, you know, always been very um, uh, adamant about is making sure that as I talk to people living with this disease and I talk to caregivers, I really represent their voice. Even though I, I work in this, this, you know, prestigious, you know, medical um, health care system, um, I also recognize that the real experts on living with this disease and coping with this disease are those who are actually living with it day by day. Um, so those living with the disease, I think, have, have put out some really important key messages. And one of them that I hear over and over again is that people living with this disease want to be known as an individual and a person before a diagnosis. That the label oftentimes can be, even though getting a diagnosis has its advantages, because our society still um, stigmatizes people with dementia, it becomes sort of this, um, this, this, this double-edged sword that on one hand it's great to get a diagnosis so you know what you're dealing with, but at the same time you're living with this stigma. So time and time again, people living with dementia have shared that just because they have a diagnosis, don't assume that I can't do things. Don't assume that I'm less capable than I am. Uh, and that's been a really important message, I think, that's been out there. And and people living with this dementia, as they speak out uh, publicly, sometimes, you know, uh, on television or in conferences, they're beginning to really change, I hope, the image that people have in their mind about what people living with this disease really look like and what they're capable of doing. Now, we'll pick this conversation up in just a moment. We're talking with Angela Lundy at the Mayo Clinic. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. We're having an amazing conversation with Angela Lundy, who is at the Mayo Clinic talking about Alzheimer's patients as well as research as well as caregivers. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zernio. We're on 9:30 a.m. The Answer and delighted you're with us, Carol. Well, I wanted to to follow up on what you were talking about uh, in terms of the, you know this voice of the person with Alzheimer's. We had the privilege of talking with Gerda Saunders, who's the author mm-hmm. of Memory's Last Breath, uh, and she was telling us the story of how she loved to go to Las Vegas. Because Las Vegas was the only place that she could go where she had taught herself to go from the hotel room out into the shopping mall and back 100% of the time. And it was the only place she was completely free to go wherever she wanted to go, do whatever she wanted to do. And her husband didn't have to tag along and watch her. He could take a nap. I mean, he was really free. Which This image of this person with Alzheimer's roaming free just fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think if, if we really begin to think about what matters most to individuals, it's the sense of choice, the sense of freedom, um, this, 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 this need to continue uh, to live our life, you know, as, as an adult um, who has the freedom and the independence uh, that an adult does. You know, I, I mentioned when we were talking, you know, um, earlier that, you know, labeling somebody with this disease sometimes, you know, paints this picture of somebody being less capable or less competent um, than they are. And so sometimes a common reaction from friends or family is to begin to start doing for that individual instead of doing with that individual to help accommodate um, for their disability, which is which is really what it is. And sometimes when we do too much for somebody or we start to take over, um, that person might begin to feel um, uh, uh, le- less worthy than they are. They might then feel depressed or agitated uh, or annoyed. And, and sometimes we think that those are, you know, behaviors, if you will, of dementia. But the underlying cause of almost, you know, a significant amount of irritability and anger and and, and um, a sense of, of, of being annoyed are these, what I refer to as these, these emotional needs. And we all have these needs, um, whether we have dementia or not. And they include things like to be treated with respect, the need uh, to be needed and to contribute, um, the need to have our self-esteem nurtured and boosted, the need to have the power uh, to choose, and and the need to feel like we have a sense of independence. And these are universal needs, and they don't change. But what does change for people with dementia is a decline in the opportunities to have these needs met. So the story you share, um, Carol, makes so much sense, and that is here is this opportunity to be in this place where the ability to feel as normal as possible and to have a sense of um, uh, choosing and and making their own choices and having her self-esteem boosted because she was able to navigate around a place uh, really on her own without having somebody by her side. Well, talk a little bit about how this, uh, these, you know, human needs that you just spoke about, how -hmm. does that translate into these memory care units to senior care uh, facilities where many people eventually have to move? You know, is there, we we talked about the hope and the research. Is there Mm -hmm. hope for um, the conditions in which people live and have choice in uh, facilities, in residential care? Such a great question, and I, I spent several years um, over the since the last time we talked. Um, I, I spent about half of my time um, in a long-term residential community, um, working with staff and really trying to to put myself in that environment and understand the opportunities and the barriers that exist for both people living with dementia as well as you know those who care for them, their caregivers. 
And and what I really came to realize was that you know this is it is challenging work, and oftentimes I'll I'll talk with staff and and they'll talk they'll share things about how people living with dementia um, are more likely to feel angry or agitated, um, or even to act in ways that are aggressive. And what I've really come to believe in and what I've really come to see play out is that 90%, and I would even go so far as to probably say 95% of the reason that people living with dementia display um, behaviors of irritability and agitation and anger or even apathy really boils down to these unmet needs not being um, offered. And so when I'm talking to somebody in a residential care community and we're trying to figure out the reason why somebody living with dementia might feel agitated, this is my checklist. And I'll ask staff, is it possible that this individual may feel like they're not being treated with respect? Is it possible that they're bored? and no longer have the sense that they're needed or that they have anything to contribute or that their life has purpose? Is it possible that they're not feeling um, their self-esteem boosted? Is it possible that throughout the course of the day they no longer feel they have choice and control? And in almost all situations, as we go through that checklist, we're able to recognize that there's a very high likelihood that one of those emotional needs are, are being uh, unmet. And then we're able to move into coming up with some real solutions that can make a difference in the quality of life. For now, that we'll, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. On Our caregiver SOS on-air hotline is Angela Lundy from the Mayo Clinic. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And, Angela, you brought up a memory for me. My dad uh, struggled with dementia and Alzheimer's toward the end of his life. My mom and dad were married for 60-plus years, and for 59 of those years, I never heard a crossword between them, ever, nothing. Mm. Nothing sharp, nothing uh, uh, demeaning in either way, and then... Uh, as he uh, progressed with the disease, uh, he showed uh, anger and uh, aggression, not physical, but verbal. Uh, and it was, for me, at that time, not understanding what was going on, it was very disconcerting to see that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what? and I, and I think that's such a common story that, that I hear from families. And, you know, I think as I try to sort of figure out what, what might be going on there or diagnose, if you will, kind of the situation, it's very likely that as, you know, your father may have progressed with his disease, that well-meaning family members began to communicate with him in a, in a slightly different way, but one that really impacted his emotional state. You know, think about how often somebody living with dementia might hear statements that start with, you know, I want you to, you need to, it's time to, no, not like that. Um, and and it, whenever you hear a statement that starts like that, you know, it begins to just peel away little by little that that sense of choice and control. 
And so when you employ empathy, and, and by that I mean putting yourself in the other person's shoes, you realize that if I heard statements that started like that, it's time to, I want you to, you need to, all day long, many days um, strung together, you and I could both probably say that we would act in the same way with the sense of anger and irritability. Yeah, enough is enough. I don't want to hear that anymore. Oh, no, I, I'm yeah. already, I'm just mad Let's just listening to you say that. I don't want you to say it anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, so, so uh, give us a, you know, a, a vision of the Mayo Clinic and, and Angela Lundy. What are your goals for the future in this work? So not the long-term and the cure, but over the next mm-hmm. few years, you know, what do you have as your top priorities? You know, for me, I'm so glad you asked that. For me, yeah, I really admire the work that, that you know, many of my research colleagues here do, which is, which is you know, a, a focus on cure and prevention. But my real passion and focus uh, in the short term as well as in the long term is to really begin to better identify what it is we need to do to improve the, the lived experience, you know, absent of a cure uh, in the next several years. Um, I'm very convinced, and I'm, I'm seeing it play out, that there are really some things that we can do, both as a healthcare system as well as a community, that can improve the lives of those who are impacted. The good news is that the National Institutes of Health have really as well leveraged some resources for institutions like the Mayo Clinic to really study more specifically um, what kinds of care and what kinds of services do people impacted by these diseases really need and what kinds of care and services really make a difference in the lived experience. So that's my, you know, passion and focus is is to begin to really create more tangible models that are available for families. And not all of it's going to happen within the healthcare system. I really believe that a lot of solutions to improving the lives of people with dementia and their caregivers lie in what we can help the community to do. What would be an example? One example um, is um, there, there's an effort that's, that we've done here in Minnesota, and it's really taken shape throughout the nation called Dementia-Friendly Communities. Uh, And there's um, uh, something called Dementia-Friendly America. And if any of your listeners want to go online and and Google Dementia-Friendly America, you'll see some of the work that really was spearheaded in Minnesota. But the idea is to create communities um, that can allow individuals who have dementia to continue to contribute and to be active members of their community. First of all, by just understanding uh, what dementia is, what they can do to help support a friend or a neighbor. Um, Businesses are also getting involved um, by better understanding what businesses can do. So, for example, um, a a barbershop or a grocery store 
can do some simple things in the way they might communicate with somebody at checkout, the signage that they might use throughout their store that can help somebody living with dementia continue to navigate through and, and, and still do the things in their community that they've always done. And then there's some real efforts in terms of creating wellness programs and opportunities for people to be involved in activities in their community. And one great example um, that started here in Minnesota is called Giving Voice. And Giving Voice is this great initiative um, uh, to create choirs throughout communities for individuals living with dementia and their care partners. And not only does it do a great job in giving people a sense of connection and building self-esteem, it also allows communities to be able to see dementia in a much different way by attending public concerts and seeing the abilities that people with dementia have rather than the disabilities that we often focus on. i got to stop you right there. Unfortunately, we are flat out of time. But that gives us a good reason to have you back again in, in the future, <laughs> and maybe sooner than five years we'll get you back. Is there a, I would love to. Is there a website folks can find you on? Um, so if you go to the Mayo Clinic um, Mayo Clinic website, just Google Mayo Clinic, and it will lead you to uh, an option to put in a disease. And if you click on Alzheimer's disease, you'll see me and you'll Perfect. see some of the work I've done. And remember, eat more broccoli. And eat more broccoli. <laughs> We're going to be following you for the next uh, 10 years, Ron, and see what happens. Angela, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Angela Lundy Bye. at the Mayo Clinic. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and us. Did you know 9 out of 10 WellMed patients would recommend WellMed to friends and family? That's what our patients said in a 2017 Press Ganey survey. We have a better approach to health. WellMed doctors specialize in keeping people on Medicare healthy so you can live your best life. The Medicare annual enrollment period is October 15th to December 7th. You deserve the best. Pick a plan that opens the door to WellMed. Learn more at wellmedfindadoctor.com. Thank you so much for being with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of every one of our programs, we bring you Take 10. We talk about an issue that may or may not be in the news, but one that we think will be of interest to you. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Dr. Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, specialist in addictions and caregiving. Carol Zerniel is here as well, and I'm Ron Aaron. And, Carol, you've got a pretty good topic you thought of for Jamie, and he's already familiar with it. Well, Jamie, one of the questions that we get asked repeatedly is, when is it time to take away the car keys from mom or dad, and how do I do that? Because um, more families are torn apart by the car key conversation probably than any other question besides uh, something financial. Uh, and, and so do you have any advice for people who want to know about the car keys? And guns. And guns. And guns. And guns. Well, yeah. well, yeah, I was going to yes. add that later, but that's, that's okay because it's, uh, it's probably a similar conversation. Uh, both of them can be deadly in the wrong hands. Ooh. That's true. No, I think they both are up the same alley. I totally agree with you. These are difficult decisions that caregivers have to make, and I think they really have to be very, very strategic about it. 
rather than go it alone. I mean, really, getting elderly parents from behind the wheel or giving up their guns, I mean, that's a very sensitive, emotionally charged uh, task. In fact, uh, to me, cars always, and driving, it represents independence. It represents connecting with people you know and love and friends. It represents, you know, a lot of things to us. And then so does the fact not having them. And so that's an emotionally charged issue. And taking the guns away from a loved one, I think, is, is just as sensitive. And both have to be done strategically because, listen, let's face it, if you do this one-on-one, the kid you ever slash, the messenger will always get killed, so to speak. Well, it's interesting because I'm thinking of some caregivers that we've worked with for the car for the car conversation, the car key conversation, you know, it seems like they see the need for that, that that, you know, really yeah. it's the da- the driving is just getting too dangerous. When we have the gun conversation, all of a sudden it's something very personal to their parent, you know, usually the dad, um, not to saying that there aren't plenty of women who are gun owners, but but for the dad that if they were, we, uh, you know, we're going to go ahead and we're going we're gonna to bite the bullet and take away the car. But we cannot take away the guns. That is his. He, it's guaranteed by the Constitution, for goodness sakes. Dad has to have his Uzi. He's got to have his. Has to have his gun. <laughs> so, Thank so, you, Ron. so you know, Uzi's the prominent one, but uh, definitely he has to have it. So, are we? You Actually, know, so, you, so talk a little uh, bit about the cars, and then talk about you know these decisions and some of the where we get muddled up in the legal ramifications of these decisions, if there are any. Well, absolutely. In fact, I think if you ask yourself questions about the car, you can actually come to questions also whether somebody should own a gun. So what I ask caregivers to do is is really take it from an observable behavioral side. You and your caregiver support network or people that know your, your loved one as well. And so ask yourself questions. So with the car, we say, how's your vision? That's something important, depth perception, um, peripheral vision, et cetera. What's your hearing like? Is there a decline in your hearing? Um, what's your general physical mobility like? So if you go to the Department of Motor Vehicle, you're going to see all of these, of course. Is your parent alert? Are they confused? And how about with the car? Are you noticing things and vents? So, or have you driven with your, your parent lately? So if you apply that to cars, and the task of driving, which is a huge emotion charge subject, and you actually take those questions and apply it to gun ownership, I think that the answers would be quite similar. And preparing for the conversation, I know, is exactly spot on for both. Well, I would, pro- I would add to that, are you willing to ride in the car with your, one of your parents driving uh, or your great aunt uh, in my case, I know that I rode with her. The last time I rode with her was the last time I rode with her and not driving. Luckily, she changed her philosophy to the youngest person in the car should drive shortly thereafter because there was no way I was getting back into the car with her. Absolutely. I totally get it. And so what if you don't have a caregiver locally and so you really can't get into the car? I mean, that's why it's so critical, I think, and that you caregiver SOS drives it, the foundation drives it, WellMed United is to get the caregiver involved in the medical journey with their loved one. It has to be that they hopefully are a part of, of the process. So getting a patient to actually bring in their loved one as a, in that journey is, is important. That's the first step. So even if you don't drive with them or can't drive with them, you do know the medical situation much better if, if you're a part of it. 
But your physician is going to be frank and true in their assessment process, and certainly that's a, a high five in terms of what you should really be thinking about in terms of the keys or in terms of the gun. You know, in our case, uh, my dad had reached a point uh, where he was having multiple accidents a day, fender benders, bumpers, not stopping in time, hitting the car in front of him, stopping too short, and the car behind him hits him. Uh, and we tried to do an intervention uh, with a social worker who came to that meeting with the theory that anyone over 65 is deaf. And so she yelled, which, of course, set my folks off right away. But in the end, although my mother had agreed to be supportive, uh, when my dad felt attacked and, and really minimized, my mom jumped in and said, what are you talking about? Sal's a great driver, which, of course, he was not, and she knew that. And in the end, my brother just took the distributor cap off the car and solved the problem. Well, there you go. But you bring up a great point in terms of age discrimination. Let's face it. Um, like I said, my father, who's 90, he's healthier, really, than my sister and myself. And he actually can drive quite well, too. So I've seen, you know, 50-year-olds that shouldn't be on the road. And I've seen 70- and 80-year-olds who drive perfectly okay. So you have to go by these observable sort of conditions right. with your loved one. Well, it's, and, it's, it's critical. It's not by age. And, and you also have to have somebody that has... The older person can't have mechanical skills because I have known of people who have disabled the car, and some of them have fixed the car themselves, right. and others have called AAA to come and get the car and have it fixed. Exactly, because they're brighter than you think they're when it bright, comes yeah. down to it. Yeah, they, they're, they're still there, so you know you have to watch that. Now, so, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, part of our Caregiver SOS on-air program. Dr. Jamie Heisman on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline, and Carol Zerna and Ron Aaron with you now. So what? So when it comes down to it, you said, you know, you've got to be smart about this. So should I, as the caregiver, say, Dad, it's time to stop driving? Not if you don't want to be served up on toast. I, I wouldn't suggest that. I mean, let's face it. When you come to the conclusion that your parents shouldn't be driving or maybe having a, a gun in the house, uh, it's never an easy conversation, but it's not one that you want to have as a caregiver with your loved one. Uh, it's fraught with challenges. It's a role reversal. There's a lot of issues that come to the forefront. Um, so what I suggest is do it very methodically and strategically, whether it's a car or a gun. And don't have a confrontation with your loved one. Make sure that you strategically put your, your family caregivers or those who love uh, your loved one together in a supportive way. And, uh, you know, sit down as a group and plan it out, siblings and spouses together. And, um, and don't accuse. That's absolutely it. Don't become punitive and accused because your loved one will, will absolutely lock down in the control battle that you don't want. And if you're part of the medical journey, obviously, what you as a caregiver should do would be write down the observable behaviors that you know and have come to know about them driving or also their mental health or, or health in terms of having a gun, and bring that list to the physician or a licensed professional and allow them to facilitate a group setting, a loving group setting. So what I hear you saying is that you, you want to have somebody else besides you, the caregiver, hopefully a, a professional, a social worker, a doctor, um, not one person, say, you know, we've got concerns, this is the behavior that we observed, but then immediately say, even though you're not driving, this is how you're going to get around. This is how you're still going to go to church, meet your friends, have coffee, that you've got a replacement network, hopefully, 
for that loss of a car. And today with Uber, it is really so simple. You can even make the call for him or her yes. and get them to You're where they want to go. You're spot on, uh, Ron. It's Uber, Lyft, and this is exactly, uh, Carol, to your point, what the caregivers need to do when they come to that meeting is literally take the, the loving, supportive role, not the confrontative role. And after the information has been imparted by that licensed professional who also has their license, if you will, on the line, you're right. Be very supportive. Come with solutions. Don't come with problems. Find out the bus schedule. Make sure that the caregivers can divvy up the, the time to take their loved one to places. Like Ron says, know about Uber. Know about Lyft. They're phenomenally excellent uh, ways to get around. And give them an answer and be able to support. You don't have to be the heavy in the situation. Support the professional's decision. Isn't that what caregiving really is supposed to be? Because you have to have the relationship far beyond that particular meeting with them, and you don't want to fragment it in a, in a confrontation, mano a mano. Got to stop you right there. We are flat out of time. Thank you, Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS On Air and Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.